0: Hi, everybody. John Donvan here, and this is Intelligence Squared. And you're about to hear a debate on the Supreme Court and the nomination of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. We're doing that with two leading constitutional scholars, both really experts, both deeply committed to their points of view, and their points of view clash dramatically on the question of what a future Justice Amy Coney Barrett might mean, both for the law and for this nation of ours. But before we do that, I want to solicit your opinion on a totally different topic. Here's the question. Do you think that the national debt and the deficit are issues that we really should be worrying about a lot? I'm asking because it's become an extremely timely question, with governments around the world spending huge sums of money to combat the coronavirus. In many cases, printing money to be able to pay for all of that. So it's such a complicated, timely, important issue. We are going to be putting it up for debate. We're going to be recording that in a few weeks in partnership with Bloomberg Television. And we want to hear from you how you would argue the question. And what we're doing, and we've done this once already and it worked really, really well, is we gather arguments from all of you, everybody in the Intelligence Squared community around the world. And then we run those arguments through IBM Watson. Yes, that IBM Watson, the the artificial intelligence system. And that system will sort your arguments and then share them with our debaters during the debate itself. So be a part of our new television series on Bloomberg by submitting your argument at ibm.com forward slash debatable. That's ibm.com forward slash debatable. That link is in our show notes, too, so you can find it there. All right, now on to the topic at hand, the Supreme Court and the nomination of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Our debate's going to center on three questions, and I'm going to put them to each of our debaters in turn. This is part of our new Agree to Disagree podcast series. I sat down with Sai Prakash and Erwin Chemerinsky for this one. Sai is a law professor at the University of Virginia. He actually testified in Judge Barrett's behalf uh, in the Senate confirmation hearings. Erwin is a dean at Berkeley Law School. Both are celebrated law scholars, and they agreed to debate this incredibly important topic with us. So let's hear it. So the topic I wanna to go to now is on the question of timing. The fact that this nomination is coming rather late in the fourth year of a president's term has made it controversial. In fact, timing of uh, just uh, nominees to, nominations to the Supreme Court has been controversial now for four or five years for a variety of reasons. So that's the first question I would like each of you to tell me your position on. On the question, should the Senate be voting on a nomination to the Supreme Court right now. Cy, are you yes or no on that? I'm a yes, John. All right, Cy, you are a yes. On the same question, Erwin, should the Senate be voting on a justice to the Supreme Court now, yes or no? No, Amy Coney Bear should not be confirmed at this time. All right, thank you. I want to go first to you, Cy, for your reasons. Why are you a yes on the, on the question of the timing of the nomination right now?
1: Well uh, on the question of timing I think the Senate has uh, the authority to consent the president has nominated someone and I don't see any reason why the Senate can't act the Senate is doing other things it's and it's considering coronavirus relief um, and of course it can legislate until the members leave and so nothing you know nothing prevents the president uh, from nominating someone nothing prevents the Senate from acting upon that nomination and I you know, I think there are three positions John I think one position is you must vote on the nomination. and I think that was Irwin's position four years ago. A second position is you can vote on the nomination, but you shouldn't. That might be Irwin's position today. And I have the, the middle position, which is you can vote on the nomination and you should.
0: All right. Thank you, Irwin. I take it back to you. So what I hear Sai saying is the Senate has every legal and constitutional right to be doing this now.
2: They certainly have the legal and constitutional right to do it, but they shouldn't do it. This is stunning hypocrisy by the Republicans. Four years ago, Senator Mitch McConnell said the American people should have a voice in this election of the next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. Antonin Scalia died in February 2016. President Obama named Merrick Garland for that seat in March of 2016. That was eight months before the election was to be held and the Republicans wouldn't hold hearings or wouldn't hold a vote. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on September 18th of 2020, and already the Republicans are looking to fill that seat. There is historical precedent. On October 12th, 1864, Chief Justice Roger Taney died, but President Abraham Lincoln didn't try to fill the vacancy in the month before the election. Or in 1956, Justice Sherman Minton resigned from the court. But President Eisenhower didn't try to pick the successor. Instead, on October 15th, he made a recess appointment of a Democrat, William Brennan, so whoever won the election would pick the successor.
0: All right. Erwin, let, let me jump in because I, I, I want to give Sai a chance to respond to some of what you're saying. So, Sai, I think we heard from Irwin saying that uh, eight months was enough of a lead time. And they were talking about the case of Merrick Garland back in 2016, but that one month, one and a half months is too short. And he cites precedent of other examples where presidents
1: had more of that timeframe. So what's your response to that? Uh, John, I think Irwin's making a slightly different point. I think if uh, this vacancy had arisen eight months ago, I think Irwin would be making the same exact point, which is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So it's not really a question of timing. There's plenty of time, as Irwin and other people know, there, there's going to be a vote in the Senate. So I think the, 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 the point is about equity. I think the point is about precedent. And Irwin has some precedents. But of course, you can go back to previous administrations and cite other precedents. John Marshall was appointed days before John Adams left the presidency. Stephen Breyer was nominated and appointed to the circuit court after Jimmy Carter lost. Um, so there, there are precedents, obviously, for acting after the election, let alone before. I understand there's some raw feelings about what happened four years ago, and I understand that people have flipped. Irwin himself has flipped. Uh, apparently, Senator Connell may have uh, flipped as well. Um, I think you know it's unfortunate uh, this this game of delaying nominations has gone on for quite a long time. I have a colleague who waited two years before she withdrew for a circuit court position because it wouldn't allow a vote that's just power you know sort of power politics on both sides
0: all right let me bring it back to erwin erwin did did you are are you basically saying um in a sense i think saya is saying that your basic argument is it it should be payback time that if uh, obama didn't get to nominate garland that trump shouldn't get to nominate barrett or is there a principle involved having to do with the proximity to election day
2: it's not simply payback. What it is, is that we shouldn't have Republican court packing. The Republicans were wrong in keeping Merrick Garland from being confirmed to the Supreme Court. But if the Republicans are going to follow a principle that a president in an election year shouldn't fill a vacancy because of the people to do so, then we should follow that principle now. It shouldn't be that the Republicans in 2016 will block a confirmation and then 2020, Russia confirmation. That's what I'm objecting to.
0: So, so it, it is size' point that you're saying that it's the a perception of hypocrisy or inconsistency as opposed to the basic principle that you're, you're not saying that it should never be the case that in the last couple of months of a president's
2: term, he should not name a nominee to the Supreme Court. If Merrick Garland be confirmed in 2016, I would not be making this argument today. But to have Mitch McConnell block Merrick Garland and rush Amy Coney Barrett is the height of stunning hypocrisy.
1: Well, I mean, I think the problem is that both sides are, are hypocritical on this point, right? Because everybody who said there was a duty four years ago is no longer saying that. Um, I guess if everybody stayed true to their position, it would be, you know, it would be an interesting vote, right? Because I, I suppose that you know, this wouldn't be brought forward, but other people would be demanding that it was brought forward. I think this is this is the simple point, John. There has been politics in the judicial confirmation process for quite a long time. There have been delays, inordinate delays. Many people have waited two years for a hearing. And that was basically politics. It was nothing else.
0: Erwin, is it ever the case from your point of view that it, that it becomes uh, not logistically too late, but too late in principle for an outgoing president to, 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 to have this opportunity to nominate another, another uh, candidate to the Supreme court. Cy given what, what Erwin is saying, the fact that this thing has become so political, does the process itself, including the issue of timing, throw into question the legitimacy of the court? Is there a sense that it's become so hyper-political that we're looking at a situation where um, the, the two parties are are, are are picking their judicial results, or at least trying to, in in choosing somebody to the Supreme Court?
1: Well, I think it's it's been the case for a while, John, that the, the parties are selecting... Nom- nominees that they believe will advance a, a vision of the constitution that more closely aligns with their party platform. So I don't think that's changed. I think if we're talking about the legitimacy of the court, that kind of segues into the third segment. But but I guess what I'll say is, obviously, uh, we're, we'd be in a better place if people weren't, didn't have hard feelings about what's going on now. Uh, but But part of that, I think, is, you know, Part of it is what Mitch McConnell and the president are doing, but part of it also is internal, right? I don't think that, again, there's no principled reason why you can't act on this nomination. And of course, there's hypocrisy, but there's hypocrisy on both sides.
0: Erwin, do you want to have the last word on this uh, particular topic?
2: The hypocrisy on the Democrat side here has no consequences. It's the hypocrisy of the Republicans here that's truly packed the court. What they did to Merrick Garland had no precedent in American history. And yet, rather than follow what they did in 2016, they're now rushing through Amy Coney Barrett. Opinion polls are overwhelming in saying that she shouldn't be confirmed now. It's whoever's elected president in November who should fill the vacancy created by Justice Ginsburg's death.
0: Okay, I want to move on to another topic, and and, and we've we've been dancing around it a little bit, and that is the, uh, the, the, the persona of Amy Coney Barrett herself, Judge Barrett. Uh, and the core question that I want to get at in this section is is basically the, the matter of her qualifications. We're putting aside the timing question now, should Judge Barrett be on the bench of the Supreme Court? Would she be good for the American people? sai are you a yes or a no on that? I'm a yes, John. And Erwin? An emphatic No. Okay, so once again, a very clear dividing line. I make your case, and you did it. Actually, uh, if people want to tune in and, and Google it, you, you uh, testified in her behalf before the Judiciary Committee. Uh, you took five minutes, but this is going to have to be the short version.
1: What's your What's the case for Judge Barrett? I think Judge, Judge Barrett is a five-tool player, as I said in my testimony. She's a fantastic scholar. She's a a wonderful educator. She's a institutionalist, she's a role model, and uh, she's an originalist. And I think that combination uh, uh, is magic uh, for someone who wants to be on the court.
2: Erwin? Amy Coney Barrett is as conservative as any federal judge in the United States. Throughout American history, presidents have picked justices based on ideology, but so has the Senate rejected them at basis. In the 19th century, about 20% of presidential picks for the Supreme Court got rejected based on ideology. It happened several times in the 20th century. Amy Coney Barrett is going to be an enormous threat to basic rights with regard to reproductive freedom, the Affordable Care Act, the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals. She should be rejected for the Senate on that basis. Si, your response to what uh, Irwin
0: just said, the, the reasons for, that he would disqualify Judge Barrett?
1: Um, I, I think the Affordable Care Act is going to be left untouched. I think the challenge that the the states have brought and the federal government has supported is not going to go anywhere. I think it's really a boogeyman that uh, that doesn't scare anybody, um, and I think we'll see that after the election, especially if Joe Biden wins, and then the the arguments from the Justice Department will flip. In terms of the other things, I don't think that Amy Coney Barrett is any threat to uh, the Bostock case from last term or. Uh, um, gays and lesbians. Um, with respect to, you know, abortion rights, of course, she might have a different view about that. But not everybody shares Irwin's conception of rights, right? I mean, that's there's a there's a genuine disagreement in this country about the nature of federal rights, the content of those rights, and Irwin, uh, you know, has his own view, uh, one shared by many, and he's very eloquent about them. But not everyone has those views.
2: Irwin, I think there's two questions. First, is ideology a basis for rejecting a nominee for the Supreme Court? And it doesn't seem we're disagreeing about that. And then the second question is, is her ideology disqualifying? I believe that anyone who takes the position that abortion is not a constitutional right should not be confirmed for the Supreme Court. And from everything we know about Amy Coney Barrett, she will vote to overrule Roe versus Wade. From everything we know about Amy Coney Barrett, she'll allow people on grounds of religion to discriminate against gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals. And in terms of the Affordable Care Act, we've got Amy Coney Barrett's own words in 2012 that the Supreme Court was wrong in its decision upholding the Affordable Care Act, and that issue is going to be back before the Supreme Court the week after the election. All right. So I want to put the abortion,
0: the Roe v. Wade question aside for just a moment and go back to the ACA issue. You said a moment ago you really don't think it's... uh... It, it's much is going to happen to the ACA, but I, I want to. Since Erwin brought it up, I want to go into that point. So, within a week after the election, the the court, and if she is nominated and serving by that time, she'll have input on this. The court is due to look at this uh, this Texas law, which wants to which uh, in in which uh, I mean so this Texas case in which. Uh, the ACA has been declared unconstitutional, and uh, it's gone through an appeals process, and now it's come to the Supreme Court. The basic argument being that because Congress uh, turned the the what what the the, the, the uh, tax penalty for non-participation to zero, that essentially the reason for the whole thing to exist has gone away, and therefore the the law itself is unconstitutional. So that's the question that's coming up. It's not really a, Strictly on the content of the uh, of the law, but on how it functions, and Irwin is saying this is coming so close that she has sent strong, strong signals that she thought the very decision that um, that led to that particular uh, perception of of the law. This whole question of whether the mandate was a tax or not is what's being challenged. She thought that that law, and she was very vocal about it, was kind of a disaster, which would indicate she's going to, I think Erwin's saying, would indicate that she would be favorable to the idea of declaring it unconstitutional. I've just said a whole mouthful there, a lot of supposition. I get it. I get it. But it's a little bit complicated. But it comes back to Erwin saying, she sure as heck is going to try to uh, take that thing away. And you're saying, yeah, not really. So I'd like to get you to take that on.
1: So there's three issues in the case, John, and it's very complicated. Um, one is, can the states challenge, can the states go to court and sue? That's a sta- quote, standing question. The second question is, is the individual mandate now unconstitutional now that there's no longer a tax? And then the third question is, if the individual mandate is unconstitutional, must the entire act be thrown away because the individual mandate is so important to the rest of the act, which is typically called a question of severability. So if they get past the first question, can the state sue, then they'll consider the other two. And the first question is not obvious to me. The second question is, is the ACA unconstitutional when the tax is taken away? And I think there are already five votes for that. So I don't think that's that that's that interesting. The chief has already told us that if it's not a tax, it's unconstitutional. The key question, if they get to the merits, if they actually hear the case, is by deleting the tax from the statute, have you unraveled the whole statute, as you put it? And I think the answer is no. Congress deleted one part of the statute. They pulled a string. I don't think the entire thing unravels because they got rid of the tax. And I, I think you can sever the rest of the statute. And I'd be very surprised if there were five votes to say um, that the whole statute has to fall, whatever whatever Judge, uh, Judge Barrett might do on the Supreme Court.
0: All right. So, Irwin, by size analysis, um, even if Amy, uh, a a Justice Barrett, were to vote for, uh, uh, were to were to take the position that the whole law is unconstitutional, he he doesn't think there would be enough support among the other justices for that to happen. Therefore, no danger.
2: I agree with his constitutional analysis. I wish the Supreme Court would agree with him, but I think what he's ignoring is that everything about the Affordable Care Act since the beginning has been highly partisan. Every Republican in Congress voted against it. The Trump administration is arguing to the Supreme Court that the entire law is unconstitutional. In 2012, Justice Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito voted to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act. Amy Coney Barrett has said Justice Scalia's judicial philosophy is hers. In 2012, she said the Supreme Court was wrong. I am not nearly as sanguine as is about this. I really fear there are going to be five votes to strike down this entire law, leaving 21 million people without health insurance in the midst of pandemic. Okay, Joe, I think that we've reached
0: an impasse on that. You just have different views of what's going to happen. Okay, I do want to return now to the question of uh, uh, abortion rights and Roe v. Wade. Um, Cy, uh, Irwin has said he thinks that Justice Barrett has made it clear she has serious moral uh, moral, obligations. Um, opposition to abortion and um, has indicated her sympathy in the past with laws that restrict access to abortion from the ideal that the uh, uh, right to choose uh, movement would want to have. So he said that that she's already starting to build a record on that. Can you take on his concern that she would be a, a
1: participant in rolling back Roe v. Wade? John, Roe versus Wade has been declared dead and buried several times. It's been modified by Casey, but it still uh, still exists through the Casey version of it, which is the undue burden version of it. And, of course, the undue burden version of it was designed by Justice O'Connor and her allies in the court to permit more regulation of abortion. So there is no unfettered right to an abortion uh, under Casey. There wasn't even one under Roe. Uh, And after Casey, it's far easier to do so. What Judge Barrett will do, I really don't know. There are lots of people who uh, are pro-life who don't want to overturn Roe versus Wade because of the disruption they believe it will cause. Believe it or not, there are pro-choice people who think that Roe versus Wade was a mistake. And so being pro-life doesn't tell you what you're going to do once you're on the court. I suspect that there are members of the court who are pro-life who have voted to uh, either uphold Roe versus Wade or to uphold it in its modified version under Casey.
0: All right, Erwin, very interesting answer because it's it's interesting that this, the judiciary hearings tend to try to tease out what a uh, nominee's politics and philosophies are in order to predict what they'll do on the bench. And Sai is saying that's a little bit of a pointless exercise because people on the, people who are serving in the court do not necessarily pursue their personal, political, and moral agendas once they're
2: making decisions. What about that? You don't need to tease out Amy Coney Barrett's views. She said last week repeatedly that she is an originalist, and Antonin Scalia's judicial philosophy is own. I challenge or anyone to show me an originalist with a Scalia-type approach who believes that abortion rights are protected by the Constitution. No justice in history is more critical of Roe v. Wade than Antonin Scalia. That only leaves for me the question, will there be five votes? Prior to September 18th, when Justice Ginsburg died, I felt there were four votes. Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, who had voted to overrule Roe versus Wade as soon as they could. I didn't think Roberts would go that far. I have no doubt whatsoever Amy Coney Barrett will. In fact, her limited experience on the Seventh Circuit shows she's going to be the vote to overrule and end the protection of legal abortion for women in the United States.
0: Thank you for listening to this special episode of Intelligence Squared. You may have noticed these days that great debate, I mean great debate, is not exactly very available. In fact, between the political campaigns and cable news, it it really can be a challenge to find substantive, reasoned competition of ideas from people who, who may have opposing views but also have a shared commitment to intelligence and mutual respect. How much of that is there out there? Well, that's what we do. We bring you and we bring millions of listeners around the nation real, honest debate through our podcasts and television and public radio, and we do it all for free. So if you think America needs more of this kind of smart, balanced debate that we present, I hope you'll help us make it happen. Because Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit and we are funded by you, our audience. So I'm encouraging you, if you can, to please donate to Intelligence Squared. There's a link in your show notes, and there's more information at iq2us.org. Also, we have a great membership program if you want to get more involved with us and our community, or if you just want to learn more about what we do. So again, that's iq2us.org. All right, now back to my conversation on the Supreme Court. Okay, once again, I think we've reached an impasse on predictions about what's going to happen there. But an interesting topic has come up that I'd like to explore a little bit. And that is the notion of uh, originalism as a a judicial philosophy. And as you said, Erwin, Amy Barrett has made it very clear that as um, a protege of Antonin Scalia, she shares his view on originalism and on textualism. And so that gives us an opportunity to look a little bit at what that means and what to expect from the way that she will think and write and rule. Sy, take us through originalism what that is and to the degree to which Judge Barrett has embraced it and what that might tell us about
1: the way she will think as a Supreme Court justice. Sure, John. I think there are two main approaches to the constitutional interpretation and implementation. One is this originalist approach, which asks, what did the Constitution's words mean at the time of enactment? either in the 18th century or the 19th century or the 20th century because of course we've had amendments including very significant civil war amendments passed in the 19th century and the, and the idea is it's not uh, it's not uh, an option for interpreters to update the constitution through novel interpretations of this ancient text because if you're able to do that you're really amending the constitution under the guise of interpreting it and the alternative approach is i think the one that um uh, Perhaps Dean Chemerinsky favors, which is the living Constitution approach, which just sort of, I think, allows judges and uh, political actors to reinterpret, reimagine, reconceptualize the Constitution to advance uh, political or moral agendas of various sorts. And one way of understanding some of the modern jurisprudence of the Supreme Court is the court has actually done that uh, in abortion rights or elsewhere with respect to rights that they favor and then uh, read out of the Constitution, other sorts of rights that the Constitution actually protects.
0: And and, and that tells us what, say about what a Justice Barrett would be doing uh, as a justice in trying to interpret
1: or, or, or rule on the cases that would come before her. So I think on cases of first impression, she would be an originalist, right? And she would be asking, what did the, what did the words mean at the time of the enactment? Uh, so with respect to gun rights, right, which is was a case of first impression until several decades ago, or a decade or so ago, and um, she would ask that question. With respect to cases that are already, where the court has already decided certain things, every justice takes into account the precedents of the court, and no justice believes that they're going to start from scratch when the court has already said something. And even Justice Scalia... He called himself a faint-hearted originalist precisely because he was unwilling to overturn precedent willy-nilly. So there is no justice that throws everything out. Having said that, it's true that every justice, the liberals and the conservatives, all overturn precedent. They overturned a big precedent just last year with respect to the jury trial rights. So the question isn't whether you're going to overturn precedent or not. The answer is you are. The question is, when are you going to and under what circumstances? And What's your justification for doing so?
0: All right. Erwin, do, do you um, have any quibble with Psy's description of what uh, originalism essentially entails? Uh, in other words, looking at the text to try to understand what was intended by it at the time it was written. We're, we're good on that?
2: I think Psy correctly defines originalism.
0: Okay. How, what's your take on originalism?
2: Good or bad? Useful? Dangerous? I think it's a terrible way of interpreting the Constitution. In part, I don't think we will ever know what was the original understanding in 1787 or 1791 or 1868. It assumes there's a consensus that rarely existed. James Madison, Alexander Hamilton disagreed about so much. But even if we could know, it assumes we should be governed by the views of those who lived so long ago. Let me give you some examples. The same Congress that ratified the Fourteenth Amendment also voted to segregate the District of Columbia public schools. That would then mean that Brown versus Board of Education was wrongly decided. Article two of the Constitution refers to the President and Vice President with the pronouns he. The framers clearly intended that the president and vice president be men. It would then be unconstitutional to elect a woman until the Constitution was amended. That's why even originalists abandon it when it doesn't get to their results the Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment created many race-conscious programs to regard as affirmative action. Yet justices like Scalia and Thomas originalists abandon originalism there. I very much believe in a living constitution, but that's not a notion of liberal law professors in the 21st century. It was Chief Justice John Marshalls who said, we must never forget that it's a constitution we're expounding. Constitution meant to be adapted and endure for ages to come. Through American history, there's never been, thankfully, a majority of the justices who believe in originalism. Cy, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, sure.
1: I think Irwin just has it wrong. John Marshall was an originalist. He was making a claim about the structural outlines of the Constitution, not a claim that the words of the Constitution could have them mean whatever we want to. In terms of the claim that we shouldn't follow 18th century meanings, it is a peculiar position to say on the one hand, we should follow a Constitution from the 18th century, but not follow its meaning. Because if you're not gonna follow its meaning, you're not really following the Constitution, right? So it, it just, I think it's, it's if you're gonna have the position we shouldn't be following the meaning from the 18th century, your real position should be, this Constitution is outdated and we ought to get rid of it. I, it. Otherwise, what's the point of having these words on a page? They don't mean anything. They mean whatever we would have them mean. I think that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate position of a living constitutionalist.
2: Not at all. The Constitution was intentionally written in very open-ended language. What's due process of law? Or what's cruel and unusual punishment? I believe that these words were meant to gain meaning over time. Otherwise, it would be absurd to be governed in 2020 by a document written in 1787 In what people thought back then, even if we could know it, which we surely cannot. And so we take the words of the Constitution and we give them the best meaning for our time. So to bring this back side to, and to wrap this part of the conversation, bring
0: this, this back to Judge Barrett, since she is an originalist and the two of you disagree on the value of originalism as a, as a judicial philosophy, just in terms of what to expect, are, are you saying that we should expect a Justice Barrett to start with an originalist analysis,
1: but move away from it if other considerations come into play? No, I actually think the way the judges typically approach cases is they read the briefs, they look at the arguments, they look to see if the court has said something on the subject before that's not dicta. And that greatly constrains what they're going to do. They also look at the arguments made by the parties. If no one is asking for a case to be overturned, they're typically not going to do so. Um, and it's only in those cases where that's really a case of first impression where I think originalism will dominate. Otherwise, it'll be amongst, you know, one of uh, several factors that they'll consider, right? So what do you mean by first impression? So, so, so if you've, if you've got a bunch of cases about what the right to counsel means, right? And today it partially means you have a right to a counsel provided by the state as opposed to a right to bring your own counsel in. That's how they're going to approach the case, right? They're going to read when someone says my right to counsel has been violated, your honor. The court's going to read all the cases cited by the parties to decide, well, what have we said this before? What have we said before? Where's the wiggle room in our prior opinions? And then work within that wiggle room to come up with an answer. Right. And maybe in that context, originalism will play a role. All right. So they're not going to it's not a tabula rasa where they're just going to start from scratch. Let me take
2: that back to Irwin for a final thought on this topic. Amy Coney Barrett wrote an article in the Texas Law Review in which she said, justices should not follow precedent when they believe that it's wrong. They should follow their best interpretation of the Constitution. Also, we're not here operating in a blank, on a blank slate. We've had originalists on the Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas. We know how they voted. They consistently voted against abortion rights. They've consistently voted against gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender rights. They've consistently voted against all forms of affirmative action programs. Amy Coney Barrett says, "Antonin Scalia's judicial philosophy is own. We know what she's going to do on the court, and to me, it's very frightening."
0: I want to move on to uh, another topic, and it's it, it briefly comes under it broadly comes under the topic of potential reform of the Supreme Court. But I want to start with one reform uh, that's being talked about and others might call it a travesty, depending on your political point of view and also your judicial point of view. And that is this notion that if Justice Barrett uh, sits on the co- is sitting on the court when a uh, Joe Biden becomes president in January and the Democrats begin talking about increasing the number of justices, on the bench, which is a term called always with disparagement, court packing, uh, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? So that's where I want to start. The idea, uh, I'll go to you first on this one, Erwin. Would it be reasonable and responsible for a Democrat controlled Congress in 2021 to increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court?
2: Yes, it would be reasonable and responsible for a Democratic Congress and a Democrat president to increase the size of the Supreme Court if Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation is rushed through.
0: Sai, your answer to the same question. Would it be reasonable and responsible for a Democratic Congress to increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court in 2021? John, I'm going to say no, but I have more to say in in your follow-up. All right. Thank you. Erwin, let's go with your your opening on this one. Why are you taking the position that that's
2: that's an okay thing for the Democrats to consider doing? The number of justices is not set by the Constitution. It's set by statute. It's varied between five and 10 over the course of American history. Nine is a historical accident from 1869. As I said, I believe what the Republicans have done is pack the court by blocking Merrick Garland and then rushing Amy Coney Barrett. I think the Democrats need to restore balance to the ideology of the Supreme Court. And I think the only way to do this will be to increase the size of the court. And I don't see anything wrong with their doing that.
0: When you say you don't see anything wrong, before we go to Cy, I I, I want to go to what I think a lot of people would see as being wrong with that, is that it would be such an overtly political move, and it would set off a tsunami of every four years, um, the incoming, if there's a change in in power, that the incoming power would fine-tune the court to its liking by changing its structure, not just its members, but its structure.
2: Not problematic? Your words were an overtly political act. Blocking Merrick Garland's confirmation was an overtly political act. And then in light of that, rushing through Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation is an overtly political act. I think the Democrats need to take action to restore balance on the court. Now, you're right. If the Democrats do this, there's the possibility in 2024 or 2028, if there's a Republican president, a Republican Congress, they could increase the size of the Supreme Court. But the alternative for Democrats would be unilateral disarmament. The alternative would be to accept a very conservative court for decades to come. Amy Coney Barrett is 48 years old. If she remains on the court till she's 87, the age with Justice Ginsburg died, she'll be a justice till the year 2059. That's that's
0: giving me pause. I was speechless for a moment there as I <laughs> as I processed that number. Sy, um, your your response to the question of increasing the number of
1: justices on the Supreme Court. You said you have a more nuanced response to that one. Well, I I think I think Irwin's absolutely right. I I do think Congress has the authority to set the number of justices. And so they they could change that by statute. Um, I don't think that Joe Biden wants to do that. And I don't think it will happen, but they could certainly do it. and It would be constitutional. But I think you're also right that there would be a a tat, right? There'd be a tit for tat. Now, so Irwin is focused on what happened to Merrick Garland. But as I said earlier, this has happened before. This isn't the first rodeo that we've been to. And the, the, the consequence of that is that both sides delay nominations in an election year, uh, certainly, uh, in a presidential election year. And that has this consequence. Again, I, I know people that waited two years and then gave up. So it, it, if they want to do it, they can, they can certainly do it. But the consequence will be the Republicans will do the same thing. Uh, and if, you know, that would just be a cycle. We've seen this in the States and I think eventually both sides, Decide this is a virtuous cycle; it's a vicious cycle, Um, and I think if that were to happen here, you would see you would see a tit for tat situation.
0: Erwin, do you do you think it's it's likely to happen if uh, if uh, Judge uh, Barrett is nominated to the court is is confirmed to the court, and if Joe Biden wins the election, do you think that you think we're talking about that as a reality?
2: Yes. On Saturday, September twelfth, I spoke at a conference at William and Mary Law School. And this issue was raised. And I said, if God forbid Justice Ginsburg should pass away between now and the election, and if the Republicans tried to push through somebody very conservative, I predict the Democrats, if they win the presidency in Congress, will expand the size of the Supreme Court. Six days later, Justice Ginsburg passed away. I continue to believe if Joe Biden wins and the Democrats take Congress, this is a realistic possibility, because otherwise it is unilateral disarmament by the Democrats.
0: So, do you... Um do you think that there would be an erosion of, of respect for what the institution of the court is if the numbers were to change? And again, we have it's been changed six times throughout American history, although not since the first half of the 19th century. So we've survived changes in the numbers before. Uh, and of course, the court's stature has gone up and down. But if that were to happen now, would that have a corrosive impact on the on the general public's perception of the court?
1: I mean, I think the general public's perception of the court comes from the court being able to sort of navigate between two extremes um, and being perceived as a neutral arbiter. Obviously, adding new justices, uh, you know, uh, would perhaps change that. I mean, the interesting thing is part of the reason why the court has uh, has a sterling reputation or relatively sterling reputation is that the slings and arrows that um, activists throw at the court from both sides generally don't matter. But obviously, if, if you continually throw slings and arrows at the court from whatever quarter, it could have an effect on the court's reputation, right, independent of whether you pack the court. Right? It is possible uh, to not pack the court and still drag the court's reputation into the mud. And that can be a combination of what the justices do, but also what people are saying about the court, whether or not there's packing. My, my nuanced, you know, I said it was nuanced, but I meant, to, what I meant to add, John, is, you know, there's a conversation to be had about reforming the court. There's a conversation to be had about what the ideal number of justices are. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not sure that's a conversation to be had, you know, when it's clear that one party is going to be, you know, adding all those justices right? But there are other other more neutral reforms uh, that uh, would be well worth discussing. And this is a neutral reform in theory, right? If you've got some sort of plan for for making sure that one party doesn't nominate five new justices. So you had mentioned reforms, and um, I'm still stunned by
0: this notion that uh, Judge Barrett would be still serving in 2059, uh, you know, of uh, how, What is that? Thirty-nine years out on the bench, and um, one of the reforms that's being talked about and has often come up is term limits for justices to the Supreme Court. What do you think about that as a
1: potential reform? I, I mean, I think that's something you know that people should be talking about and thinking about. I, I think it's also appropriate to think about age limits for the Supreme Court, and for that matter, all federal offices. I think it's you know we have a interesting you know we're an interesting place where both. People running for president are rather old, and many members of Congress are rather old. And there's nothing wrong with being old. Uh, I feel old all the time, but uh, people understand that uh, mental faculties uh, degrade as you reach you know certain ages, but there's nothing in the Constitution prohibiting people uh, from serving indefinitely on the courts and also serving indefinitely in Congress. So I think those are useful conversations to have about whether you should have a term limit um, or whether you should have an age limit. Would you be pro-term limited, pro-age limit yourself? I, I, I think the independence that is secured with a set term is sufficient. That is to say, 18 years during good behavior is just as good in terms of securing independence as good behavior. The only sort of marginal difference is that people can seek promotion, but that's true now, right? Circuit court judges seek promotion to the Supreme Court.
0: What about you, Erwin, on the question of term
2: limits? I strongly favor 18-year non-renewable terms. I've argued for this for many years. In part, it's because thankfully, life expectancy is a lot longer today than it was in 1787. It was then 36 years old. Um, Clarence Thomas was 43 when he was confirmed for the Supreme Court in 1991. If he remains until he's 90, the age with Justice Stevens retired, he'll be a justice for 47 years. That's too much power in one person's hands too long a period of time. Also, too much now turns on the accident of history when vacancies occur. Since 1960, there have been 32 years with Republican presidents and 28 years with Democratic presidents. But Republicans have picked 15 Supreme Court justices and Democrats have picked seven. That's just because of the accident when vacancies occurred. Erwin, I want to thank you for that answer and
0: um and i want to point out that it's uh it seems to be the one thing that you and sai have agreed upon except uh, there was also the fact that you agreed to both be here and to address one another in a respectful and civil manner which means that you've hit the target that intelligence squared always sets for civil discourse so i want to thank you both for shedding light on the things that we can and should be thinking about around the controversy surrounding this nomination And uh, despite your disagreements, uh, you you both taught us something, and you did it well and in an interesting fashion. So Erwin and Sai, thank you so much for joining us
1: on Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, John. Thank you, Erwin.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Agree to Disagree. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. Shea O'Mara is our director of editorial. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman, and I'm your host, your moderator, your debate referee, John Donvan. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early